How does having an experienced attorney guiding a veteran through the appeals process increase the likelihood of a successful outcome? Having a guide is good under most circumstances, particularly when you're on unfamiliar terrain. For most veterans, the veterans' benefits process is unfamiliar terrain. It's a complicated bureaucracy that has to be woven through, carefully managed in order to get to the ultimate benefit. One of the things that an experienced VA benefits attorney brings to every case is an understanding of what evidence is going to be critical to persuading the Veterans Benefits Administration to grant the benefit that's being sought. Welcome to the Victory Over VA podcast. A podcast about empowering veterans to overcome denied disability claims. Each week, we deliver critical insights to help you understand the disability process, veterans' benefits, and how to take control of your legal rights. Now, here's your host, Tony Francis Jackson. So folks, today's episode is Commandment 6, Call for Reinforcement. Now, this is our Victory Over VA, your guide to unlocking your VA disability benefits, our weekly podcast. I'm Francis Jacks, and this is Christian Terrison, and we're here to talk about why it's important to get help. Today, we're going to dig right into that issue, and... This is a part of our ongoing series, uh, the Ten Commandments for Getting Your Veterans Benefits. All right. So to begin at the beginning, uh, the sixth commandment here of Veterans Benefits, call for reinforcements, uh, and we're talking specifically about the help of, a, of an experienced uh, veterans disability attorney. So why is it so critical to have the help of a, uh, a veteran's disability attorney um, when, uh, when a veteran has their claim denied? Well, that's actually a, a more complicated question than it seems on its face. Here's how it works. The claims for veteran's benefits really fall into two categories. There are some claims that the VA can see the disability, they can rate the disability, people are unlikely to have a lot of trouble. There are other claims, however, where that's not the case. Just as an example, if two soldiers were in a Humvee in Iraq and an IED goes off, um, blasts the Humvee, one soldier loses part of his foot. Now, the VA can see that, they can rate it, He's probably not going to have a lot of trouble with other benefits. He's not going to need to call for reinforcements. But the other soldier, who seems perfectly fine, but actually has a severe concussion and damage to his brain that results in migraine headaches, difficulty remembering, difficulty focusing, the VA can't see that. Odds are 
that soldier is going to have a tough time getting VA benefits for his traumatic brain injury. And so he's going to need to fall for reinforcement. Gotcha. Um, and so how does having uh, an experienced attorney uh, guiding a veteran through the appeals process increase the likelihood of a successful outcome? Well, it, it, uh, it's important in multiple ways. You know, as you can appreciate, having a guide is good under most, almost any circumstances, particularly when you're on unfamiliar terrain. And the thing is, for most veterans, the veterans' benefits process is unfamiliar terrain. It's a complicated bureaucracy that has to be woven through and uh, carefully managed in order to get to the ultimate benefit. And so having a guide uh, without anything else is important, but one of the things that an experienced VA benefits attorney brings to every case is an understanding of what evidence is going to be critical to persuading the Veterans Benefits Administration to grant the benefit that's being sought. Lots of different benefits are available depending on a particular illness or disability that you have, but different ones require different kinds of proof. But going back to your question at the generic level, one of the most critical things that an experienced VA attorney brings to the table is an understanding of how to go about proving the particular issue that's a problem in the case. Now, in most of our cases, not all, but most of our cases, the VA has a problem with the medical connection between what happened in the service and the veteran's current medical condition. Uh, going back to my example with the IED and the traumatic brain injury, almost all traumatic brain injury cases that get turned down are turned down because there has not been a carefully uh, put together, fact-based psychological report showing what's going on and why the uh, particular pattern that this veteran is showing was consistent with the traumatic brain injury. There are different ways to do that. The most common and, in my experience, most effective way is uh, neuropsychological testing, which actually can demonstrate what areas of the brain are not functioning correctly, and then it's possible to determine whether that's consistent with the injury that the veteran sustained, in our case, the IED attack. So that's a, a huge piece in almost all cases. But take another example with the same soldier. Another problem that can arise is the VA says, okay, the Humvee was blown up. We don't have any records showing you were there. And then it's a different kind of proof problem. It's a question of locating the morning reports or the incident reports or sometimes the damaged vehicle reports or climbing ranks of the soldier that was present in the Humvee. There are lots of different ways you can go about 
proving the missing facts, but the critical point is to understand, A, what the VA is recognizing as a critical fact that's missing, and B, the various ways you can attack that lack of proof and support the veteran's testimony that, yes, I was there and this is what happened. Um, so, you know, it's like anything else. Um, I've been doing this for over 30 years. We started, started doing these cases in 1991. And over that time, I've had lots of opportunity to see how the VA analyzes cases and sadly, how they often get off the track and what we need to do to get them back on the track to get the veteran all the way to disability benefits. Mm -hmm. So uh, I know you've been doing this for, for decades and it might be hard to pick, pick just one, but can you uh, share an example of where um, you know, your intervention as an attorney uh, turned around a, uh, a claim that was denied? Sure. So we had a gentleman who was stationed in Germany during peacetime and uh, sustained some injuries when the vehicle that he was driving was hit by a tram or, or a train in, or, I think it was Wiesbaden, but somewhere in Germany. The VA said, there's no record of this incident. This, this just didn't happen. So we went out and got his personnel file, which the VA routinely does not get. And there, hidden away in the personnel file, was an incident report where he was written up for having a vehicle uh, that he was driving uh, and which was hit by a tram, and he was written up because he had apparently um, not uh, been cautious enough according to the uh, reviewing uh, military authorities. They felt that uh, Ulf Gergwijen in, in getting as close to the tram at, at his speed and its, its speed and, and was partly responsible for the accident. But um, the VA had gotten his, uh, his military records file and there was nothing in there to support his statements that this accident occurred and he was injured. And it was only when we got the separate personnel file, which is stored separately by the U.S. government, um, that we were able to prove that this accident happened and he was injured. And yes, he was entitled to the benefits. And he's been telling the VA he was entitled to for literally uh, almost a decade at that point. Um, so say I'm, I'm a disabled veteran who's had their claim denied. I pick up the phone and I call Jackson and McNichol. What happens next? What's well, the process? Um, as we've done more and more of these uh, cases, we've kind of specialized our process. So what happens is, uh, regardless of, of how you get guided to us initially, and there are many ways, but lots of cases come to us from referrals from other veterans particularly folks that we've represented and helped to get their benefits. So once um, you've been steered in our direction and make contact with our office, then one of our very experienced input specialists will talk with you on the phone, go through some basic information about who you are, where you are, what your claim is, what the VA has done with your plan so far, 
and kind of just uh, kind of getting the, the lay of the land, so to speak. Once that's been done, um, they will let you know whether or not it's a claim that we can help with. Sadly, we can't help everyone. Um, we, we literally do not have the resources to help every veteran that calls us, but we do our best to try to help those who have serious injuries. We, we, we try hard to find enough resources to help everyone who has a serious um, service-connected problem, in our view. And once we get you through the initial steps um, with that uh, initial intake call, then you will send a whole series of documents to be reviewed and signed. Is the government, after all, so lots of forms. Um, and once those have been signed and returned, we will start the process by um, contacting the VA on your behalf. Um, typically, it would be the very day we get the forms back from them. We will uh, upload the information to the VA, tell them that we're now representing you, and doing two things. Number one, uh, giving them an intent to file a claim. And that's uh, an important step just because if no claims are currently open and we don't have enough information about your claim to actually specify all the details and put it on the VA forms, we can file this intent to form, uh, this intent to file form, and that starts your claim running that day. So it, it kind of, uh, think of it as a marker for starting the claim. And then once that marker is in place, we can gather whatever information we need from you, from the VA, from medical providers, wherever we have to get it, and <coughs> excuse me, take that information, create the claim, and submit it. And because we filed the intent to file form, whatever time we start the claim, even if it's up to a year later, it will go back, according to law, to the date we filed the notice of intent to file. So that because when, when you file a claim, your potential benefits run from the first day of the first month after you file. So say we're in the middle of a month and it's the 15th and we submit your documents today, your claim would be effective in terms of potential retroactive benefit payments as of the first day of the month. So what that does is it starts the process. It gives us time to get everything together, to figure out exactly what we should file, and file it. The other, um, the other piece in terms of uh, starting the process is uh, at the same time that we notify the VA that we are representing you, we will also start working to get your file from the VA. That usually takes anywhere from 30 to 90 days, depending on the circumstances. For some reason, about 1% of the files take months to get, and nobody seems to know why. But there, there is just this small percentage that it's very hard to get the file for whatever reason. And, but on the average, as a rule, 30 to 90 days will get us the file, let us see what's going on, let us see what all the claims that have ever been filed by this veteran, what happened to them, where they are, if they're on appeal, where they're on appeal, at what level, 
and what needs to be done to move each of those claims forward. Now, if there are old claims that have been denied, we'll look at them and see if we think those claims have merit. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't, but usually they do. Usually the, the veteran filed them because there was a legitimate reason uh, related to service for this particular problem he's having at the present time. Of course, she's having at the present time. But that's, that's the process. Right. And start with the intake call, we've developed the information, we file the forms with the VA, and then we start gathering the additional information to make sure that we can establish what claims the veteran is entitled to make, what claims have already been made, and to the extent that claims are currently pending, where they're pending, and what needs to be done to support each of them at the particular one. Um, and earlier you talked a little bit about, you know, the, the VA's uh, perennial difficulty uh, uh, rating conditions that aren't clearly visible. What are, um, I guess, the greatest hits of reasons that, that you see veterans' claims denied, and how can specifically an attorney help in those situations? Well, there are a couple ways, and I, I sort of alluded to them earlier, but the, the most important way is understanding what it is that the VA is saying is missing and how you go about proving it. I can't begin to tell you the number of veterans who have been turned down by the VA and simply don't understand what it is that's wrong with their clearance. Virtually every veteran I've ever represented has come to me in frustration saying, you know, my claim is perfectly clear. I don't understand why the VA is worried. And so we have to sit down and look at the documents that the VA has provided when they turn down the claim and try to understand what's going on. And that can be a variety of things. But the single most common problem is the failure to have a specific statement from a medical person, doctor, nurse practitioner, chiropractor, whoever, um, that explains in simple, straightforward terms how the facts related to this veteran's service led to a current medical condition. Usually 90% of the time, that's the problem. Now, there are other problems. And we talked, for example, a little earlier about our veteran in Germany whose records couldn't be found because they were calculating his personnel file. We had a very, just very frustrating case in the last couple of years where the veteran had repeatedly told the VA that while he was on active duty service, he had what we would probably call a nervous breakdown, but serious emotional difficulties, and was sent to a particular um, VA hospital, um, sorry, military hospital. And the VA kept saying, no record, no record, no record. Well, turns out there were records. Just took a while to get them. What we had to do, ultimately, was to get the morning reports for his unit. And those reports showed, ultimately, that, number one, he started not being present in his unit at the time he said. 
Number two, that another soldier in his unit was listed as traveling with him to the hospital. Um, and, you know, he continued to be listed as absent from his unit. Um, and ultimately, we were able to put those documents together and show that these various entries, when you looked at them cumulatively, clearly demonstrated that he wasn't at his unit, he was sent to the hospital, someone else was sent with him to make sure they got there because it was in such tough shape, and that he later returned to his unit. Um, but the VA was unable to get the medical records directly from the hospital. There's a, a very, well, let me say archaic system for maintaining service member hospital records. They are not kept in the service members, ordinary medical records, hospital records are separate, and uh, records that involve psychological or psychiatric issues are not only separate, but you know, have special additional hurdles that you have to jump through in order to get them because of their confidential nature. And the VA had just never been successful in getting his records. But those records exist, and uh, we, had, had, it, took us, it took us a long time, even though we were sure that there were records, it took us a long time to get them. But we did, and the veteran finally got those 100% benefits, which he had been waiting at that point some eight years for. Um, so how, how about an attorney's uh, understanding of VA laws and regulations? How, um, how can that help a veteran whose claim has been denied? Well, you know, that ranges from the very simple to the rather complex, but let me give you a very simple example. Uh, Alexandra, who works with us, uh, my daughter, um, is a very experienced VA hearing attorney, has done literally hundreds of hearings. And she went to a hearing uh, last year, I think it was, and came back just shaking her head, said, you know, she'd been preparing with her veteran, and just in conversation, he happened to mention that he had diabetes. He never made a claim for diabetes, but he was a Vietnam veteran. He had served in Vietnam, uh, two tours in fact, uh, presumptively exposed to Agent Orange, which can cause diabetes. But no one had ever told him, even though he got treatment with the VA, no one had ever told him that his diabetes was presumptively service-connected based on his exposure in Vietnam, and that all he had to do was file a claim and basically it was granted, uh, you know, but nobody told it. So the first and simplest piece is simply being able to provide comprehensive information to veterans about what claims they're potentially eligible for. That, that in some ways is, is the biggest service. Um, but on the, on the much more complicated level, we've had veterans who had their phones denied at the regional office, at the Board of Veterans' Appeals. And we, the next step in many of those cases is to appeal to the Court of Appeals for Veterans' Claims. And at the court, 
unlike at the VA, you can't just go in and say, I'm John Jones and I was exposed to Agent Orange and I think my uh, wireless answer should be sort of connected. You have to demonstrate how, as a matter of both medical proof and law, that there is a service connection for the claim. And at the court, uh, while there are still some veterans who try to go to that level uh, without assistance, as a general rule, to be successful at the court, you're going to require the services of an attorney. And uh, on an even more specialized level, there is a further review from the Court of Appeals for Veterans Claims to the United States Court for the Federal Circuit, which is the, if you will, the reviewing court for the Court of Appeals for Veterans Claims. And specialized cases such as constitutional issues can be taken there. And just as an example, uh, a few years ago, we took up the case of a gentleman, Mr. Cook, who is now um, memorialized in the Veterans Appeals Reporter. And the situation for Mr. Cook was that the VA said that uh, he didn't have any Social Security disability records. They asked Social Security records. Well, in fact, there were Social Security disability records, and in those records there were a bunch of reports from his doctor at the VA explaining how uh, he had hurt his back while in service. But the VA had contacted Social Security. Social Security got back to him and said, we don't have any reports to buy. Um, the VA didn't bother to tell Mr. Cook that Social Security had said that they would never any reports. And when Mr. Cook asked for a hearing at which he could present that information, uh, the VA said, no, you had a hearing on your claim earlier. You don't get a second hearing, goodbye. We argued that that was unconstitutional, that the law required that they give him the opportunity for a hearing and that uh, at that hearing, had he had the opportunity for the hearing, he would have introduced the evidence showing that, yes, Social Security had all his reports, and uh, that we had copies of them that he, could, he had been able to obtain and would give to the board. So that issue went up. The, uh, the VA insisted that um, they didn't have any obligation to give anybody more than one hearing. Um, if they did so, it was purely uh, at their discretion, and certainly somebody like Mr. Cook couldn't just demand that he get a hearing. So we took that issue to the court, and in fact, we prevailed. Uh, and the uh, Department of Veterans Affairs was so unhappy with that result that they appealed it to the Federal Circuit. And again, uh, we uh, briefed that, and you know, it's a uh, friend of mine, Ken Carpenter, argued the case at the court, or actually, John Niles from his firm, but uh, argued the case at the court, and won uh, at, the, at the Federal Circuit level. So now Mr. Cook is enshrined not only in the Veterans Appeals Reporter, but in the Federal uh, Court Reporter. Um, so um, this, there are issues that require specialized legal knowledge 
in order for the veteran to prevail. And I'm, I'm happy to report that Mr. Cook has now been, uh, after everything was appealed and appealed and granted and remanded, um, he has now been granted service connection for a fact condition, although we're, we're still arguing about the, uh, the correct level of rating for his back condition, but at least he's getting service character benefits. Mm -hmm. So uh, in answer to your question, I know that was a, kind of a long-winded answer, but the answer is that specialized knowledge of veterans' benefits law and constitutional law often is the key to resolving some of these difficult cases. Yeah, I, I remember uh, when uh, Mr. Cook's decision came down, uh, it was uh, quite the atmosphere around the office because that had been a long time coming. It had. It was really something else. Um, earlier you talked a little bit about the mistakes you see the VA making when they're denying veterans claims, but um, what mistakes do you see most commonly uh, that veterans are making uh, when appealing their claims, and, and how can an attorney help to uh, either mitigate or avoid those mistakes entirely? Sure. Um, it, it goes back to something I said earlier. Um, so many veterans think that their case is just so obvious that there's really no need to go out and get further proofs, that they can just tell the VA, this is what happened, and the lawyer should send check. So, sadly, it doesn't work like that. Um, much of the time, the VA will not take only the veteran's word for it. They, they want some kind of support. Um, it can be various kinds of support, depending on the case, but they want some support for the veteran's statements as to what happened, how it happened, what it happened. And you know, um, it's, it's very difficult for a veteran with no legal training to understand how to put that stuff together. Let me just give you an example. Um, we have a, a case actually that's pending now where the veteran was in a car accident, sustained a, a concussion, uh, a bad head injury concussion, kept him in the hospital for a week. Not too long after that, he went in the service, did okay, uh, you know, had, uh, had good performance and everything, uh, then had a second car accident, second concussion in the hospital again. And so he gets out of the hospital, goes back to duty, and starts getting written up for misbehavior of various kinds. Um, and ultimately uh, uh, is uh, let go from the service. Um, and, you know, he, uh, he didn't get a, uh, an early discharge, but they, they were happy to see him go and marked him as, you know, someone they, they, didn't, they weren't going to offer to real list. Mm. Um, and the VA, you know, made a conscientious effort to develop this case. They sent him out for a, what they call a compensation and pension examination. Uh, sent him to a psychologist for review. And 
the psychologist completely ignored these incidents with the concussion and said that in his opinion, um, this poor veteran had what he called senile dementia. The psychologist called it that. And it had nothing to do with his time in the service. Well, first off, it was inappropriate for him to ignore the fact that the gentleman had not one but two serious head injuries because the symptoms that you could observe in a psychological interview from senile dementia are almost identical to the symptoms you would see uh, from this kind of traumatic brain injury happening not once but twice. And the, the psychologist just did a poor job. But the, the, uh, the underlying problem was that even though the records from the hospital were in his file, no one at the VA recognized that as significant. And our poor veteran had no idea that that was either medically or legally significant. He didn't understand how to present the case showing that what had happened to him with these injuries was what led to his inability to control his behavior and perform as he had prior to the second accident. And that's what led to his, uh, his uh, release from service. Um, he didn't understand that that causation change at all. Um, and the VA paid no attention to it. And unfortunately, the examining psychologist paid no attention to it. But we ultimately got it sorted out. But those are, um, and that's, that example is a little on the extreme side, but I, I, I wanted to highlight uh, your, your point that veterans often don't understand even what it is they should be talking about when they're raising their claims. The, the good news is that the court came out with a very important decision a few years ago in the Clemens case where they said, hey, uh, VA, you're, you're doing this wrong with these psychological cases. When a veteran comes to you and says, I think I have PTSD and makes a claim for PTSD, you can't turn him down just because when you have a CMP examination or a private examination or private medical records, they say, well, really, he doesn't have PTSD. He has depression. You can't just say, well, he didn't make a claim for depression go away. You have to look at all of the symptoms that this person has and figure out whether those symptoms, number one, demonstrate a mental health issue, and number two, if they de demonstrate a mental health issue, whether that mental health issue is potentially connected to service, and if, if it's potentially connected, pursue that and try to determine if it is actually terrorist-related. You know, for many years, it was very sad. The, the VA would get some poor soul who claimed that he was suffering from anxiety, and they would say, no, you're suffering from bipolar disorder, goodbye. Or uh, they would get somebody who's suffering from bipolar disorder, and he would say, well, I have PTSD. And they would say, no, nah, you don't have PTSD, goodbye. And instead of actually looking at what was going on, whether it had been all service, or whether it was entitled to benefits.
I'm, I'm happy to say that uh, that although Clemens is not a case I participated in, we've been able to apply it on a number of occasions to help veterans who got treated in that way. I had one uh, myself just uh, a couple months ago. It yeah, happens. Definitely a useful case. And I mean, these diagnoses, they're tricky. Like you said yourself, the, the symptoms for senile dementia uh, look just like the uh, traumatic uh, brain injuries. TBIs. Right, right. Um, so the, the last thing I wanted to ask about is a, a, a persistent misconception that, that I hear a lot about uh, online, things like that. And, and it's veterans who think they can't afford uh, the help of an experienced uh, uh, VA disability attorney. Um, but, it, you know, typically that's just not the case. Can you talk a little bit about, um, sure. you know, cost sure. fees, things like that? Sure. Yeah, the, the way this works, um, the, the law allows for virtually any kind of a fee agreement between a, a veteran and an attorney once the veteran has made an initial claim and been denied. However, Almost all these cases, easily 99%, are handled based on what lawyers call a contingent fee agreement. Contingent fee agreements are, are probably most commonly uh, thought of in the context of personal injury cases. First it gets hurt, the insurance company doesn't want to settle, the person ends up getting an attorney, the attorney takes the case on uh, on the basis that if they are successful in getting the benefits for a person, they will get a percentage of the benefits. And that's the basic model that almost all veterans' cases are handled on. You, you, you certainly could sit down with an attorney and make an agreement to pay the attorney by the hour to work on your behalf. That's legally permissible. But I've literally never seen a case where someone wanted to pit out the hourly fees every month um, all the way through to get to the end of the case. It's much more common to do what is called a contingent fee agreement. And typically in our office, we would um, enter into an agreement with the veteran that calls for us to be paid, number one, only if we win. If we win, we would get one-fifth or 20% of the past due benefits. And it would only be from past due benefits. So for example, if a veteran filed his case today, and it took five years before we were finally able to convince the VA to pay the benefits that he should have been entitled to, uh, we would get 20% of the five years worth of benefits. So um, just to take easy numbers, if the person uh, was entitled to $10,000 worth of benefits a year for five years, $50,000, we would charge a fee of $10,000, 20% of the total past due benefits. And I keep emphasizing the words past due because if we represent a veteran and ultimately the VA determines that he's entitled to benefits, but only as of, um, say, last month, so that there are no past due benefits because, as we know, uh, the benefits only start with the month after you're found eligible. Um, so if there are no past due benefits, we wouldn't get paid. We would have worked on that case for free. 
we're willing to do that. We, uh, we're pretty careful about trying to take cases that we think have a real basis in law and fact. And uh, we uh, set it up with the veteran on a contingency so that the veteran doesn't have to pay us anything unless and until we win. And in some cases, we even advance money to get a specialized expert Medicaid report to help win the case. But um, again, if we lose those cases, we don't ask the veteran to pay us back for those expenses. And another thing that I think uh, might be important for, for some of our listeners to know too, is the arrangement is usually that the VA pays us directly. So there's no need to, to worry about uh, arranging that and the logistics of it. And uh, yeah, and as you said, there's nothing that comes out of any future benefits. It's, it's all just just those benefits that, you know, but for uh, the work of the attorney, they, they wouldn't have received a penny anyway because the VA you know, denied the claim. Yeah. I remember one veteran saying to me, you know, I'm, I'm happy to pay you. Uh, said 80% of something is way better than 100% of nothing. And I, I think that's the way most veterans do. Good math. Um, well, we're coming to the, to the end of our time today. Uh, this has been Victory Over the VA, uh, our weekly podcast on uh, veterans' disability issues. Um, please tune in next week uh, for our seventh commandment. I'll leave it as a cliffhanger. You can find out what it is. And let me just echo what Christian said. Please, please tune in every week. Thanks. Thanks for joining us this week on the Victory Over VA podcast. Make sure to visit our website, veteransbenefits.com slash podcast, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Spotify, or via RSS, so you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. If you like this show, you might want to check out our free consultation to see how we can help you with your denied claim. Simply go to veteransbenefits.com and fill out the form. You fought for us. Now let us fight for you. And be sure to tune in next week for our next episode.